The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my lovely co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're going okay. Thanks, Brandon. So I have a question for you. Do I look any different? Or I maybe could make a leading question. Do I look any better? Any better? (laughs) (laughs) That sounds like a loaded question to me. The answer is yes, obviously. The question is why, though, is what you're getting at here. Well, I'm going to tell you the why, but I was first, you know, just going to lead with the, do I look fresher faced than usual? You look fabulous. Are you just saying that because you have to? Well, I'm saying because I have to, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but are you also saying it because you genuinely see a difference? Uh, I think so. Is there uh, like a skin thing happening? What's uh, Okay. There is a skin thing happening. So over Christmas, I had my cousin visiting and I can't remember how we got into it, but we were talking, oh, it was maybe because of the French gym and the EMS in the French gym, you know, electromuscular stimulation, which is my lazy gym. And I was telling her about that. And she's like, oh, I use microcurrents on my face. And I said, you do what? And apparently in America, this is a complete thing, but So far, I don't know anybody else in the UK doing it. So they have these different microcurrent apparatus, I don't know, appliances, I don't know what the right word is, that sends different levels of electricity through your face and basically gives your face exercise without having to do hours of face yoga, which I was never really understood. Does your face need to exercise? Is that, what is that? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, so I had been worrying for a while about my jowls. And I've been going around in the house to Andrew, just lifting the skin kind of from like mid jaw up to the back of my jaw and just going, look, look, look at that, how clear and lovely my jawline is now. And Andrew's like, I see no difference. And I'm like, no, no, you can look, no jowl, jowl, no jowl, jowl. So it's definitely been weighing on me along with, I can't remember what they're called, like the marionette lines that come down from your lips and kind of around your cheeks. I mean, from your nose down, like that whole lower from cheekbone down area has been causing me some concern because I am horrifically vain. Like I'm not going to pretend any other way. I ended up writing a piece in my writing class. About your jowls. About Well, not about my jowls, <laughs> about my life. And it was one of those where like, I'm quite good at a final zinger of a line. And I kept writing a line and it'd be like, meh, afraid of death. Yeah, whatever. Meh, no, this doesn't feel real. No, this doesn't feel real. And then suddenly out of me came the line where, of course, now I'm paraphrasing myself not as well as what I wrote. I don't know who I am if I'm not beautiful. And so I realized that this is like a major part of my identity. And it's ballsy to say, because one, then you're owning up to the fact that you're good looking and nobody likes a show off. And then secondly, it's superficial. 
and it's not the way we're supposed to be. I am not growing old gracefully. I am like fighting it tooth and nail, except for oddly my hair, but we've talked about my hair and that's a fear of death thing. So, so far from the research I've done, it doesn't appear to cause cancer, my new microcurrents in the face. So I'm using it quite a bit. And now in the same way that I talked about Zoe and the research I've done, I'm going to explain why I bought the Zip Halo over the new face something else. New face spelled N-U face. And my cousin has the new face. But then I, of course, had to research everything in the world about there's these are like the two top tier electrocuting your face for beauty options. And I went for the Zip because it has like an anti-acne one and it has a nano current one. And of course, like, who knows? I don't think any of the science is real. I don't know if nanocurrents actually like stimulate collagen, whatever. But the anti-acne one does seem to work. I've not really had a breakout since using it. And my jowls, I think, are significantly reduced. So for anybody else who is as vain and worried about aging and becoming irrelevant, because clearly like being attractive is part of the world's expectations of women and you are interested, I would highly recommend the Zip Halo. <laughs> I'm not even sure what to make of this. So, <laughs> okay, so you're using electrocurrents applied to your face to flex the muscles to like make them more tight or rounded or what have you, make you look younger, basically. And so totally conflicted, but yet I actually have to say, like in one of these, I'm a feminist, but moments I'm a feminist, but I enjoy electrocuting my face for beauty. Lovely. So we have a great topic today, which is how do you build a business that is smarter than you? And we have a phenomenal guest for this in Jennifer Sundberg. She's the co-CEO of Board Intelligence and also the author of Collective Intelligence. A lot of intelligence going on here. Before we get to that, Bethany, I wanted to ask you two questions. And the first one is, what does good questioning look like? Because a lot of what Jennifer talks about, which we'll get to in her interview, is this question of what does good look like when it comes to questions? Because questions are the foundation by which you can actually unpack and unveil what needs to be unveiled within an organization to drive it forward. So what does good look like for questions? I'm not going to use my own brain, but Jen's brain on this, <laughs> I'm going to say that simple questions and the obvious questions are the best rather than like, questions that are set to catch somebody out or show that you're smarter than they are. I was in a meeting the other day and there was a tremendous amount of what, what they're going to do, what is going to be delivered. And there was absolutely no why. And there was no context around it. And then they wanted to discuss the what. And I was just like, but why? Why are we doing this? What's the change in the strategy? Where has this come from? <laughs> Give me what's in your head before we talk about the what. And for me, that was like, and it wasn't even a question. I mean, the question was literally why. And then that opened up a 20-minute discussion rather than like just getting into the detail as to whether or not there's too many OKRs or trying to look at too many things. How about you, Brandon? A couple of things that I think about. One is my coach has been very clear with me on this over the years, which is, Brandon, you need to come from a place of curiosity when you approach things like this, because my previous mantra style, for better or worse, was to be much more directive in terms of my line of questioning, much more challenging and confronting. And I think over the years, 
I've definitely switched gears, I would say, into much more of the why questioning and much more of the curiosity mindset. And it just fundamentally delivers better results, I think, to be honest, because what you're trying to do is to get them to think in a different way about things without telling them that, essentially. And that's really the question of the why in this case. And another one is talk me through your reasoning or where has this come from? What is the problem we're trying to solve? And then again, I think it's from like genuine curiosity, taking out the sting of like, I have no time. Why have you just spent the last four months working on this when you were supposed to be doing that, which might be what I'm feeling on the inside. (laughs) But instead, with a bit of a breath, what prompted this? The second question is meetings, which is any hints or tips when it comes to this question of meetings? Because as we note with uh, Jennifer in our interview, meetings are the bane of everyone's existence and trying to put ourselves in a better position when it comes to meetings. There's all sorts of tricks of the trade here, but I'm just wondering from a Bethany perspective, when you think about meetings, what are some useful ways to approach meetings to ensure that you're kind of optimizing for the right thing? It's interesting. I'm not somebody who hates meetings. I'm certainly somebody who hates some meetings rather than on the whole, I quite like meetings. It's when there's a long meeting with no particular point to it, and you don't know why it's in your diary, but you have to go. Those are the meetings that I think people talk about as hating. And so it's around being mindful. Like I definitely, particularly in COVID, and then it just seemed to have happened after COVID, is lots and lots of standing meetings to make up for just people you would normally like have lunch with on occasion. And now suddenly it's a booked in one-to-one or something. It's a revisiting all of your standing meetings and making sure that there's an actual point to it so that you have more space for the ad hoc meetings, which are the ones that are really helpful because you're solving real-time problems or planning for the future. And then thinking about what are you trying to solve with this meeting and what is the ideal outcome so that everybody comes in aligned. And also opening the meeting with like, the point of this meeting is X. Are you the right people in the room for that? And are we all aligned? I've been in meetings where I'm like, the point of this is X. And people are like, no, it's not. And we've actually spent the first 15 minutes of the meeting trying to figure out why we're having it. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad meeting. It just makes sure that we're all aligned. That's a good catch, isn't it? Making sure once in a while whether you call it a retro or not doesn't matter, but once in a while, taking that recurring meeting and have a conversation with that group about the meeting itself, which is, does this meeting continue to be useful? Why are we actually meeting? Have we drifted from the original purpose? And if so, does this meeting continue to make sense? If we want to have better meetings going forward, what should that look like based on our past history of this meeting that we've had thus far? So I think just that occasional step into the actual meeting format itself as to why are we doing this in the first place? Does it continue to make sense? And how do we make it better? Conversation, incredibly useful, incredibly important. You don't need to do it all the time, but you you usually have a gut feeling as either a participant or as the host of that meeting when that kind of conversation would actually be useful. And then the second piece is, I think for leadership meetings in particular, having pre-reads that are done for substantial topics that need to be debated and discussed are incredibly useful to get to actual decisions in that meeting itself. Because oftentimes in my past, if you don't have these pre-reading documents a couple of days prior, what you end up doing in the meeting itself is having a ramshackle conversation that's all over the map because you're not aligned, you're not on the same page, at least from the get-go. And that pre-read allows everyone to get to a place where they're right on the cusp of being able to have an amazing conversation about that material. 
And then the last little piece that I think about now is more of a COO is me piggybacking on the CEO's EA is incredibly useful. <laughs> so when it comes to calendar changes, booking rooms, lunches that need to be had, having the EA be able to access my calendar to make adjustments when it's needed, super, super helpful. Because uh, at the end of the day, you know, you are leading that business and you have to be enabled time-wise to help run that business and having some of this logistical stuff managed for you is incredibly helpful as well. And then going back to your comment on pre-reads, definitely agree. Love a good pre-read. What I also really find helpful in pre-reads is in the exec summary, what is the author looking for? Is it just to let us know? Is it an approval? Is it a decision? Because there's multiple good ideas. And so which one is the best one? Or conversely, everything is bad, which is the least worst one that we should be going for. Is it a debate? Is it a brainstorm? Because without being really clear on why somebody is presenting this to you and the outset, you're going to be reading in lots of different ways. Everybody may have done the pre-read, but you're no closer to having a good conversation because one person's like, yep, read it fine, cool. And somebody else is saying, well, I actually think that, you know, <laughs> these five things are horrible about it. And I've read the document very differently. Yeah, actually, this is a fantastic point because every pre-read, the pre-reads we did previously were all premised on the basis that a decision needed to be made. That's why we did the pre-read. That's why we put the effort into the pre-read itself is because we knew that it was substantial. It was consequential. We had to have everyone to weigh in as to what decision was the best choice for the company at that point. And to your point, if pre-reads are used more generally than just deciding what the purpose is of that pre-read in this case. And it happens a lot in board meetings as well, because sometimes as a board, you need to read something to for governance reasons, it needs to be approved. You want to understand the background, but in, you know, you're like, as long as it's reasonable and you understand the background, it's a de facto yes, or it's for awareness, or sometimes it's like for awareness. And as a board, you have no authority. So actually it's literally for awareness. And so then it's good to know and come into it with those types of questions. Perfect. So with that, why don't we go on a quick break? And when we come back, we will have our conversation with Jennifer Sundberg. We're delighted to welcome Jen Sundberg to the podcast. I've known Jen and her co-founder, Pippa, for quite a few years, so it's exciting to have you on the podcast. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for inviting me on. I loved reading your book. We should also talk about the fact that you have just written a book, and that is part of what we're talking about today. It's called Collective Intelligence. In the book is what you're seeing as problems is not unique to boards. It might not be unique to businesses, but it's not unique to boards. Like the number of management team meetings I've sat in or leadership team meetings, I should say, where we don't get to the important topics because we're looking at past performance. And there's a reason the book is called Collective Intelligence and not Board Intelligence, Board Intelligence being the name of our company. And that stems from the realization that when you look at what the root causes of what I described in that boardroom that I observed, Typically, that the information is short in one or more of three areas. And these shortcomings are not shortcomings of board information. These are shortcomings of skills in the management team. And they have far more profound implications once you realize that. So the three things that we look for in board information, it's first of all, is it full of critical thinking? Is it just a great big information dump or does it pull out the why, the so what, the now what? Secondly, 
is it well communicated, right? Because you could have the most fantastic quality thinking, but if it's poorly communicated, you're never going to get your message to transmit, right? So secondly, the quality of communication. And thirdly, is it focused on what matters most? Because again, there's no point having lots of fantastic thinking, really well communicated about the stuff that doesn't really matter. But the broad information is the canary in the coal mine. And when any one of those three characteristics is lacking, it's typically a sign that one of those three skills is not as well developed as it needs to be within the management team. And that has profound implications, right? Far more wide reaching implications than merely the quality of the board discussion, important though that may be. And so what our work has become these days is much more about working with leadership teams, management teams, right the way down through an organisation to build the skills and the habits around each of those three disciplines, which happens to yield really great board papers. And in turn, that drives really great board meetings. But in some ways, these days, we think of that as the silver lining. So it was interesting in the book when you were talking about We probably don't ask as many questions, but it's not just that. We also want to be experts in the way that we ask questions. So when I was reading it, and for benefit of our listeners, it's basically about figuring out and creating a framework of questions. So it's not just taking a pause and asking questions or trusting that your team are asking questions. It's to have a set of questions that you figure out are important and consistently ask them. I was saying this to Brandon earlier. It's like, I suspect you either sit down and you do it for five minutes And those first questions are it and it's just stop. But then you won't just stop because you have to be smart about it. And you'll ask like all of the questions and then you'll have 50 questions and none of it will matter. Or you do this iterative approach and it takes you six months to land on the five questions that I suspect are your first five questions anyhow. So do you see this? And how do you keep people to asking the right questions and not every question? Yeah. So how do you land the right questions? So Something you said at the start there was that it's often the simplest questions that are the best. It is the how and why questions. It is, you know, it's the why, the so what, the now what. So one of the things we do is we will agree with our clients a set of what we call a QDI play, question-driven insight play, which is a set of questions or typically sets of questions for slightly different situations that are ready-made, lift and drop for everyone in the organisation to use. So if you're sitting down to write a quarterly business review, performance review, or a plan for next year, here is a set of starter for 10, some really good questions to get you going, which gets you in the habit of thinking about questions. They are not the end of the process. There may be other questions you need to bolt into, but it gets you into the frame of mind of thinking before you start to write or prepare your deck, whatever you're doing, to start by thinking about the questions. Now, you're right, there are many questions one might ever ask on any topic. And so we help people to think in terms of tree diagrams, questions, sub-questions, sub-sub-questions, and to try to group things. You can always group and subgroup. And ideally, at the very highest level, you don't want more than about five major questions under which you slot your sub-questions and your sub-sub-questions. That's actually for reasons of partly communication, actually, that when you come to communicate your thinking to somebody else, the sort of the narrative thread that we can hold in our heads is somewhere around seven plus or minus two major points. And if you try to communicate anything in more major building blocks than that, your receiver will probably lose the thread. Now, you don't know whether your receiver is capable of seven plus or minus two, right? So we tend to say target five. If you can communicate your thinking in five major building blocks, which would mean five headline questions under which you have sub-questions and sub-questions, you're probably onto a winner. Rules are made to be broken, right? But it's a good sort of starting point. It's a useful heuristic. So yeah, so to your point, what are the right questions? We advocate setting out as an organization sets of starter questions that you 
encourage people to work with, to help them to build that habit, to build the confidence. The number of times we've worked with, say, boards of large multinationals receiving proposals from the workforce for many hundred million pound or hundred million dollar investments, and yet one or more of the following questions aren't being answered. So it could be, what is the need or opportunity and why now? What you've got is a great thesis on a proposal for something to be done and money to be spent on, but this gets answering the question, the need or opportunity and why now? Equally, options are often missing. So need opportunity, why now? What options were considered and why they were rejected? With whatever it is you're proposing, you know, what's the inherent risks, how you propose to mitigate them, the options of doing nothing, what you need to do to progress, what would be the impact of a delay in taking this decision? You know, there are all sorts of questions that are quite simple, but quite universally applicable. Or if you're reporting on performance, very often it's very backward looking, but you want to know not just what has happened, but what are the risks and opportunities on the horizon? Again, you want to know things like net-net, where does this leave us? What's your confidence in achieving your goals and you know, your aims? And what do we need to stop doing, start doing or do differently? Often very simple, fairly obvious questions. But again, the number of performance reports that I've read that only look backwards or that don't speak to what needs to stop, start or you know, what needs to stop, start or do differently, getting this right is, is actually quite mentally taxing. But it is actually quite mentally taxing because when you sit down and you think, hang on, here's what has happened but you know, why, so what, now what, or what are we going to do about it? Quite often you don't actually have a ready prepared answer to that. You've actually got to figure out the answer before you can write the report. And that's where the real value lies, is when the process itself prompts you to think about stuff that you might have otherwise gladly skipped over. With or without questions, I find it very painful with teams who can't even add any commentary on the sides of the graphs. And building in that habit, <laughs> like we're not just like forcing everybody to figure out what these mean, but there's a lot of pushback where it's like, I don't have time. I can't, and I'm just like, well, what's the point of it if you can't think? But it's in some instances. So in, in one case, I'm actually on a board where there's never any commentary. And I've been working with the team of like, we need some commentary here. And they just like, I don't have time. With any habit that you're trying to develop, you need to make it easy to do and hard to avoid. And I think part of making it hard to avoid is making it visible. The evidence that they've done so is in the paper that is produced, right? And so we build a methodology where you do actually state the questions that you're answering. So it is very visible that that's what you're doing. And it becomes very apparent when the commentary you put underneath the question does not actually get to the heart of the answer. It's plain to you as the author, it's plain to the reader. So all of that makes it very visible and makes it stick. Dame Carolyn McCall, a while ago now, she, before her ITV days, she was chief exec of EasyJet. She turned up at EasyJet at a pretty challenging time for the business. She quite quickly determined that morale within the workforce was poor. Not surprising in many ways. As a low-cost carrier, they'd cut and cut and cut. And you, as is often the case, you start to cut away at the bone, right? She baked in a question into pretty much every report, every plan, every meeting that was, how do our people feel and what are we doing to strengthen the relationship between us and our, our workforce? She made that the dominant theme for everything. She flipped around a culture that had been focused on profit, customer, people, became a, fo- a culture focused entirely on people, which would yield benefits to the customer, which would yield eventually profits. So she wants to completely flip the focus of the organization the culture of the organization, the preoccupation of every manager in the organization. And she did it by implanting 
question about the health of the workforce and the health of their relationship with the workforce into absolutely everything, which meant that every month those questions and coming up with good answers to those questions became the preoccupation of everyone at every level. So that's a great story, great power of a question. We're COOs here. So do you literally write the questions on every report that you want? Do you make your managers do it? How do the questions land where they're supposed to land? And how do you make sure that they're being answered? He or she who controls the questions controls the conversation. And the leadership is to set that direction and to communicate at least some of the questions that are required of management to engage with. We have a software package our clients use, which helps to cascade those questions through the organization. People log into that software platform when they come to craft their management reports, which helps to make sure that they're working from the correct set of starter questions and you can easily update them and tweak that focus with them. But even if you're working from pen and paper, right, it doesn't matter if you set somewhere in your organization's uh, knowledge management systems that these are the starter questions we want you to use for every quarterly business review, for every annual plan and proposal or every business case that gets prepared, you can have a place or find a place where you can log a set of questions because that way you can update those questions. And with that, you can refocus, essentially reprogram what it is that your management teams are going to lock onto and cogitate around. So uh, just on that second thesis around communication, I'm very, very interested in good meetings and what good meetings look like. Meetings are critical to ensure that there's accountability in the organization where you ask the right questions in those meetings, as an example. But I guess my question to you is, how do you create phenomenally good meetings? One is organize your meetings around questions. Funnily enough, that's my answer to many things. But what is the question or questions that for each agenda item you're trying to get to the heart of? Identifying, articulating the question will force you to achieve a level of precision that just a standard statement of an agenda item or title of the meeting doesn't quite require. It also primes the minds of the people coming to that meeting to engage their brain in service of helping to answer that question. It helps you to more accurately identify who you're going to need to help answer that question, what information you're going to need to support and substantiate the basis on which you reach a decision in answer to that question. So try where you can to figure out what is the question or what are the questions at the heart of the meeting that we're convening on? That makes sense to understand the questions you're answering in ad hoc meetings. Is that also the case for your standing meetings? And are you thinking about the question every time or is it always the same questions? When it comes to things that are maybe on a slightly slower cadence, say a monthly meeting or a quarterly meeting, then we would challenge, even if the standing item is performance review, right? We would challenge the person whose topic that is, the person who's preparing the briefing note, that they should spend time isolating. What do they think is a question or a few questions that that group could usefully contribute to, given the state of whatever it is that you're presenting and call it out? So you might be speaking to a fairly standard set of information about what your goals are, what's working, what's not working, what you're thinking about the future and where you think this leaves you. But within that body of information that you're preparing and knowing the skills of the people who are going to convene around that table, what would you like back from them? Isolate it, articulate it, spell it out so that they know where you want value back. It should be a two-way process. You know, re Reporting is often seen as a one-way process. It's a burden on the person who's been asked to do it. They 
pull together all this information, they pass it across. That's where it ends. But actually, we convert that into a, it's a two-way process. So articulate what is the dialogue you want to have with the reader and tell them. It sounds amazing. As you're talking, I'm like, I want to be in those meetings. I want to have these conversations. That would be so much better than so many meetings that end up at. But what I find, particularly not board meetings, but exec team meetings, is the politics. And so I think there's a lot of purposeful lack of clarity because you're hiding underperformance or you're like explaining away underperformance by adding another metric and another metric. Do you see that? And how do you address the cultural issues that mean that you can't have these open conversations that good questioning prompts? So the way we tackle that is by building in the QDI play for a standard performance report, the question, what's not gone well? And making it crystal clear that if you can't answer that question, if you can't articulate what's not gone well and what's keeping awake at night, so both lenses, looking back and looking forwards, if you can't answer those questions, it does not imply that you're nailing it. What it implies is that you don't have a handle on your part of the business or that you're simply not willing to share it and you're not being candid, neither of which are a good look. So making it both normalised so that those two questions are, if they're not being asked and answered, they are conspicuously absent because it is normal procedure in your organisation to call out those questions and address them head on. But as I say, making it quite understood that actually this is about how you display your proficiency as a leader by communicating your grasp on those challenges. We have our leadership meeting where it's much more of a formal agenda of things to go through in terms of scorecards and action items and KPIs and thematic things across the business we need to be debating and discussing and deciding upon and so on. And then in addition to that, we have kind of a a coffee chat at 8.30 in the morning between three or four of us and have an open-ended discussion. And I can see between the two meetings, the value that we have in that coffee chat is phenomenal compared to the more structured one. And the question that arises in my head is, well, why is that? What's happening in that coffee chat that's not happening in the leadership meeting? And the one obvious answer to that is just the mindset. You're coming into a coffee chat to ask a good question at the outset and then to weave a very natural, organic conversation that flows where people are contributing in a way that is very sensible to get to some conclusion, outcome, whatever, during that coffee chat where there's a revelation that we've had together collectively. And when that occurs, it's magic. And in leadership meetings, I never see that. So my question to you is, what's happening here? You have two jobs to do. You have the job of steering an organization and building the business of tomorrow from the business of today. But you also have the job of supervising and making sure that what you think is being done is being done and it's working. And they are two very different modes, two very different responsibilities of any manager, team leader or business director. And they demand different types of meetings with a very different tone. I think the biggest problem is when you try to do the two together. So I think hurrah that you have a separate, as you describe it, a sort of coffee chat, which even the name of it, I haven't called it quite what you did, but it had the word coffee in it. I love coffee. But it sets up an expectation of a much more expansive thinking, more collaborative. It's not me versus you. Whereas the other meeting, which is the supervisory, you know, where are we? And, you know, have we hit our targets? What does the data tell us? Is the plan working? Is it even being implemented at all? It's much more about seeking assurance. It's much more almost like the policeman's hat. And by necessity, it's a very different tone. 
what we see in some board meetings is agenda item one, performance report, agenda item two, strategy for next year, agenda item three, a deep dive and performance update from some corner of the business. And the board is trying to shift gear between item one, item two, item three, and constantly shifting gear. You can't really shift the tone of that room in the way that you need to. So we advocate grouping those agenda items into those of a more steering nature and those of a more supervisory nature. Ideally stick them on different days, but at the very least have a proper break between the two and come into the room as that other persona that you need to be to fulfill the different role. That's really interesting because at peak we have done that, but I don't know if we've done it on purpose. We definitely have like the longer quarterly ones, which are more of a steering element and then the shorter monthly or bi-monthly ones that are more of the supervisory. So yeah, just interesting. I like that framework. I have one question. There was one area in the book that I did not agree with, which I did mention when we were talking. Like, And it kind of goes back to the Amazon thing. So you can tell I have some sort of issue. So I have an issue with everybody spending time reading the report, but I also have an issue with the assumption that it has to be prose in a document and therefore it's better sense of communication. One mildly dyslexic and don't love reading and I'm quite visual. And so the graphs give me a tremendous amount of information. And two, I have read very bad prose with no critical thinking and I have consumed very good PowerPoints with critical thinking. So I think it's not true that it has to be one medium or the other. The real distinction in my mind is between whether you're preparing a self-explanatory briefing or whether you're preparing a visual aid to a presentation that without the verbal narrative to support it won't make any sense. And I think what we often see is beautiful presentations that would be excellent visual aids with the narrative to support it that are submitted in advance. They're not read because they're not really readable without that verbal narrative. And so people don't read it. And so it is presented in the meeting, which reinforces no point reading it in advance. And then you waste all of this valuable time in the meeting where you could be progressing the collective understanding of a topic through exchange of and dialogue. You're wasting it with a monologue. So for me, the most important thing is preparing something that is self-explanatory, that can stand on its own two feet, be readily understood by the receiver in advance. But I also think there is something about preparing it in a form that is self-explanatory, that can force you as the author to be a bit more specific and a bit less hand-wavy than a few bullet points in a photo might require. And it's when you get more specific that you might uncover that what you thought was clear and made sense isn't actually very clear and doesn't actually make sense. The most value we deliver to our clients is when the process of producing that report, authoring that briefing note, causes the author to revise their plans, because it's in externalizing that thinking that they spot the gaps, they spot the flaws, and they correct for that. The silver lining is you end up with a better report at the end of it that is more robust and more rigorous, but it's a silver lining. It's the fact that that thinking would not have happened otherwise that we see as the biggest win. Awesome. Okay. So then I I agree more. (laughs) If it's a standalone document, 100%, and hence my request for some commentary on some of these board reports. But I also agree, like, for me at least, it depends because you have reports where it's the same slides every month and you update the commentary and then you have something special where you need to think about your narrative. You need to understand what's the point, how does it flow, and you know, basically write all of the headlines of all of the slides and then fill it in. And then you realize where your gaps are. And probably that first set of headlines isn't the final, but it's still the embedded critical thinking. 
well, I just like having more, not pictures, but more graphs that are easy to understand and big enough to see. (laughs) So we are nearly out of time. Final question is, we've spoken about so many things today. It's been absolutely fascinating. If our listeners were only taking one thing away from the episode, what's the one thing? Ask yourself, if I could engage everyone in my organization in thinking deeply about one question, one question that would dominate for the year ahead, what's the one question that I think we should all link arms and engage in week in, week out, month in, month out? What is the question that you think will drive the greatest thinking power in your organization? Perfect. So thank you, Jen, for joining us on the operations room. If you like what you hear, please leave us a comment or subscribe and we will see you next week. 